might go ahead and turn in your Old Testaments to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. We'll begin there in a few moments. It's wonderful to be with everyone this afternoon to be able to worship God together in spirit and in truth. We have a number that are absent today. Several are going through various illnesses and struggles of the flesh. Keep them in your prayers, of course. And we hope to see them very soon again. But it's wonderful to be with you. Appreciate very much Brother Billy's lesson uh, this afternoon on the church. And as it's used in the New Testament, there's so many problems that have come from that misunderstanding, as he's mentioned. I appreciate the time that he gave to that. I also appreciate Adam's uh, leading of the songs this afternoon. He asked me what I was going to be uh, preaching on. And so the song right before the lesson, Is Your Heart Right With God?, will kind of help us in our study this afternoon and prepare us for some thoughts that we'll see in Ezekiel chapter 36. If you haven't turned there, go ahead and turn there. And while you're turning there in Ezekiel 36, the prophet is giving attention to some positive thoughts. Of course, the people of God are in captivity because they had committed spiritual adultery. They had given themselves over to idols, and God was long-suffering to them, but His long-suffering was limited to that extent. They were led into captivity, and this is where Ezekiel, a contemporary of Jeremiah the prophet, is prophesying. And he gets to a positive portion of Ezekiel chapter 36, where he's demonstrating that God's name has been profaned among the nations in their captivity as they were in captivity, as they were unfaithful to God, the nations just saw the people of God that didn't have their own land, that didn't have their own government, that didn't have their own authority. And so they looked at God and looked down on Him in that regard, not to mention the people of God as a whole, moreover, were not submitting to God as they should. They weren't faithful to Him. That's why they were in captivity. So God's name is being profaned. And so... In Ezekiel 36, God's going to do something about that. And we'll note that He stresses this is not because of Israel and their faithfulness and what they deserve and what they've earned, but it's for His name's sake that He's going to restore His name among His people so that He's no longer profaned among the nations. And in verse 24 of Ezekiel 36, the prophet gives attention to really seven blessings that the Lord will bestow upon Israel Again, for His name's sake. This is for God's glory that He's doing this. He says in verse 24, I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you need never again bear the reproach of the famine among the nations. You will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not, were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you, be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. 
Beginning in verse 24, as I indicated, he enumerates seven blessings. Firstly, he would bring them back to their land which he gave to their fathers and they would dwell in it. Secondly, he would cleanse them with pure water from their ways. And he would give them, thirdly, a new spirit and a new heart. They would have a new attitude toward God. They would have a newfound dedication to him. That was a foundational thing to put his spirit in them, the fourth blessing, and cause them to obey his commandments and walk in his ways. And he would cause them to dwell in that land and be his people. Tremendous blessings would follow these things that God would do for them for his name's sake. He would continue to multiply their fruit and he would continue to be their God. And I want us to understand that three of those blessings are obviously important. All of them are, but three especially have a connotation to the messianic kingdom, the church that Billy was talking about just a moment ago. We especially understand in verse 25, this sprinkling of clean water on them and the cleansing that they would receive from it is really a foreshadow of baptism that would wash away sins. In fact, the same language is used in Hebrews the ninth and 10th chapter. And in this text, this clean water is a reference to the water that was purified and made holy by the ashes of a heifer so that it could sprinkle on those who are unclean and they would be made ceremonially clean. In Hebrews 9 and 10, that is paralleled with the blood of Christ that sprinkles on a heart and cleanses it of its sins. But I want us to understand that this cleansing is only the beginning. This cleansing is the start. He says, I will put a new spirit within you. Take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And that blessing really is a prerequisite to really God's goal in all of this. It is a means to the end of a people that are fully devoted to God, fully devoted to His will from the heart, not by constraint, but by will, by desire, by love. We need to also note that this is something that the Lord is doing. It couldn't happen without Him, and it wouldn't happen except that He wanted it to happen. Seven times, or rather, eleven times in that short text we read, you see the pronoun I. He's doing this. He says, this is what I am doing. I will do this. I will do that. But why we need to stress that, that it is the Lord doing this, and it is for the Lord's glory. I think it's also always necessary to stress the fact that we have a part to play in this. He said there in verse 26 that He would give them a new heart, taking the heart of stone out and giving them a heart of flesh. He would do this. But I want us to see in Ezekiel 18 that we have a part to play in this reception of a heart of flesh. In Ezekiel 18, you might remember the context where Ezekiel is stressing that the soul who sins shall die. The righteousness of the righteous is upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked is upon himself. If a wicked man turns from his evil ways, he'll live. If a righteous man turns from his righteous ways, he will die. The soul who sins shall die. And so he beckons them to repent. He says in verse 30 of Ezekiel 18, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For Why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Be impressed by the words that we just read. Get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. 
understanding fully that God is doing this and it can't be done without Him, but we need to get ourselves a new heart and a new spirit. You, you think about that though in a context like the parable of the sower where there were certain soils that were not the good soil. They're set in contrast to the good soil, but they indeed received the Word and bore some fruit to an extent they sprouted up to a degree. Those were people who were added to the church, like Billy was talking about earlier this afternoon. Yet because their heart was not changed fully, they did not fully break from that heart of stone and allow God free course in their lives. They fell away from the truth. And so we need to ask ourselves that question. Are we allowing the Lord to take the heart of stone out of our flesh so that He can give us a heart of flesh? And as that is so He can put His Spirit within us to cause us to obey, are we being directed by the Spirit of God? We need to make sure that our heart is right with God, not just that we were washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's very important. That's what He says in verse 25, I will cleanse you with pure water from your iniquities. We need to make sure that we're allowing that blood to transform us into a completely, a totally different individual. We have a different heart. I want us to be impressed by that contrast of a heart of stone and a heart of flesh. But of course, we realize that in speaking of the heart, the human heart, he's not talking about the actual fleshly heart. He's using figurative language while he talks about taking a heart of stone. We know no one has a true heart of stone. He's taking that out of the heart of flesh and giving a heart of flesh. He's still not speaking of the flesh. He's speaking about a spiritual transformation. The human heart he's speaking of is not our blood pump. But I think the Bible makes very clear what the heart is, really being the seat of who we are as members of mankind. You might remember in Genesis, the sixth chapter and in verse five, speaking of the antediluvian world, before the world is flooded by water, we're given the reason why God decided to do this. Verse five of Genesis six, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. I want us to notice that the heart thinks. We want to know what the heart is. What does it mean God is going to take a heart of stone out and give us a heart of flesh? Well, I want to tell you, the Bible tells us that the heart is that part of man which thinks. And because their thoughts were evil continually, God decided to destroy them. Along with that, I want us to notice in Mark the second chapter after Jesus had healed a man of paralysis. We know what great friends that man had as those four men let him down through a roof when the building was full and no one could get in. And Jesus healed that man and after he healed that man, some of the scribes and Pharisees reasoned in their hearts, verse 6, why does this man speak blasphemies like this when he said your sins are forgiven you? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And I want us to notice in verse 8, immediately Jesus perceived in His Spirit that they reasoned thus within Himself. He said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? And then He healed the man. Got ahead of myself. He said, Your sins are forgiven you. And they reasoned, This man speaks blasphemies. He says, Why do you reason these things in your hearts? We think with our hearts. And when we think with our hearts, we reason with our hearts. We weigh options with our hearts. We use our logic that God has blessed us with. And naturally, when we think and when we reason, sometimes we're given to understand. In his explanation of speaking in parables in Matthew 13, 
Quoting from Isaiah the prophet, Jesus said, The hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn that I should heal them. And if a heart thinks and a heart reasons about what it's thinking about and, and, and receives that information and is able to process that and weigh those things and understand them, then it is very feasible that the heart can believe. And that's exactly what we see Philip telling the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts the 8th chapter when he said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. As we're thinking about a heart of stone and a heart of flesh and the transformation of heart that God is trying to cause in our lives, let us be impressed by the fact that the heart is the part of the man that thinks, reasons, understands, and believes. I believe that we can give this the title of the intellect. When we're thinking about the heart, part of the heart of man is our intellect, the way we can know and the way we can think. But I want us to consider that that's not all the heart is, according to Scripture. In Hebrews, the fourth chapter, and in verse 12, warning these brethren about apostasy and following the example of disobedience that the Israelites stood as. He speaks about the Word of God and its activity and how powerful it is. It's living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirits of joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts, we just noted that, and intents of the heart. When a man thinks and reasons and understands then he forms his intentions by those thoughts that are gained from that information. The heart intends, according to Hebrews 4 and in verse 12. When speaking of the contribution in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and in verse 7, the Apostle Paul was seeking to impress the Corinthians with the gravity of this particular component of our dedication to God and our reverence to Him. It wasn't just simply putting some money in a basket but it had to do with the heart. He said, let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so as the heart intends, it also purposes. It decides what it is going to do, what its purpose would be. And therefore, the Apostle Paul could say in Romans 6 and verse 17 with those Christians, God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And so part of the heart that humans have has to do with the intellect and also it has to do with the will. We need to know some things and then we need to allow those things to mold what we will to do, what we desire to do, what we think to do, what we purpose and intend to do. But that's not all. In Matthew, the 22nd chapter and in verse 37, answering the question of the scribes, what is the greatest command? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. We stress all the time, and rightly so, that God doesn't want obedience simply for the sake of obedience. He wants obedience from love. In fact, Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. But we know all too well with the Israelite history that their problem in large part was rote. They just did things because the law said it. Their heart was not involved. They didn't truly love God. And because of that, there was admixture in the nation and they were serving idols, which is why they're in captivity, as Ezekiel prophesies. The heart loves. In Romans, the 10th chapter and in verse 1, speaking of the Israelites and their hardness of hearts, 
The Apostle Paul lamented that his countrymen were not saved. And he noted his love for them by saying in Romans 10 and verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. And so we love with our heart, but we desire with our heart. We're moved by our heart when we get to know things and those affect our will. In Proverbs, the third chapter in verse 5, wisdom tells us to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. You trust with your heart. I believe this is all the description of our emotional side of existence. And so it stands to reason when Jesus speaks about giving us a heart of flesh and some having a heart of stone, it involves their intellect. It involves what they've come to know and what they think about, which affects their will, which in turn affects what motivates them, their emotions, what they desire, what they trust in, what they think about day in and day out. I want us to further be impressed by in Ezekiel 36 that he does state first there is a heart of stone. That was the whole problem with Israel and that's the whole problem with mankind, period. From the things they have thought about and the things they have willed to do and the things that drive them each and every day, they have produced in themselves a hard heart, a heart of stone. That needs to be removed for salvation. And God wants to remove it. We've got to give Him the free course to do so. I believe there's an example not only of a stony heart, but also a heart of flesh in Ephesians, the fourth chapter. In Ephesians chapter 4 and beginning in verse 17 of the text, we read about a heart of stone. When the Apostle Paul says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. He mentions several things that fall into those three categories that we establish Scripture shows has to do with the human heart. I want us to be impressed, first of all, about the intellect of that heart of stone. Did you notice there in verse 17, he speaks about the futility of their mind. The Greek word translated into futility, defined by Art and Gingrich, is the state of being without use or value. It means emptiness, futility, purposelessness, transitoriness. And the American Standard Version, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17, translates that Greek word vanity. In the New King James Version, which I'm reading from, that word is found in 2 Peter 2 and verse 18 to describe the words of the false teachers. And it describes their teaching as great swelling words of emptiness, the same word. He speaks about the futility of their mind or the emptiness of their mind. Jesus spoke a parable in his ministry about a house that was cleaned and left empty. And so many other spirits came that were evil and filled that house. And its latter end was first in the beginning. When our hearts are empty, it gives room for Satan to enter. It gives room for sin to enter. And so there's the problem of the stony heart. Firstly, it's a heart that is empty. It's vain. It has no real purpose. It is manifesting a focus on the transitory, and therefore he continues to explain the stony heart. They have a futility of mind, and so their understanding is darkened. If you don't fill your heart with the knowledge of God's will, 
then your understanding will be darkened. And therefore, another description of that in verse 18 is ignorance that is in those individuals who are the Gentiles. But you know, there's a great danger in an emptiness of heart because the empty heart will be filled with error. And if it's filled with error, if it's filled with sinful thoughts, just like we saw in Genesis the sixth chapter with the world that would be flooded with water and destroyed, then the will will be damaged. The will is going to be polluted, which also has to do with the heart. You notice there that because of their futility of mind, darkened understanding, their ignorance in verse 18, they are alienated from the life of God. That life of God is described in many parts of the New Testament simply as the righteousness of God. The just shall live by faith. Romans 1 and verse 17. These people are not living by faith. They're not walking according to God's standard of righteousness revealed in the gospel because that's not in their minds. Their intellect is devoid of God's structured will and pattern. And so their will is not to do the will of the Father. They are alienated from that life. And therefore, it describes them as those who have a blindness of heart. Another translation in the ESV is their hardness of heart. Their heart is hardened against God's will. Remember Pharaoh's heart being hardened, and it describes God hardening his heart, but also Pharaoh hardening his own heart. It described the nature of his heart that was set against God's will. When God said, let my people go, and he very well could have let his people go at the very first request, at the very first demand, simply to defy the God of the Israelites, he said no. And he was even more harsh toward them. You have the intellect and the will that is a description of the stony heart. I want us to notice what they're motivated by. It says their past feeling. That word is defined by Vine in his lexicon as being insensible to honor and shame. Strong defines it with the word apathetic. And so they are unaffected by the gospel message, either positively or negatively. When God tells us about something that is sinful, that is damning, that is dangerous, it doesn't affect them at all. When God gives us incentive, like we studied last week in my lesson on Philippians 2 and verses 12 and 13, He tries to give us the will to do His will. It doesn't affect them. How beautiful heaven must be we sing. The stony heart doesn't care. It's unaffected. In Philippians, this same heart is described in the third chapter in verse 19. It speaks about how their end is destruction. And notice, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. They set their mind on earthly things. Their motivation has to do with filling their appetite, which leads to their glorying, not in things which are indeed honorable. As Vine says, it means you're insensible to what is honorable. You're insensible to what is shameful. They glory in shameful things. That's the heart of stone, I believe, that Ezekiel is prophesying about. It's intellectually devoid of God's Word, and therefore it's willfully opposed to God's Word, and it is emotionally indifferent toward God's Word. Is that your heart? Is there still a semblance of that heart of stone? Are we studying to come to know greater God's Word? Are we willing to do what we study and come to understand and know? Is that what drives us each and every day and strikes emotion within our hearts? 
It's no wonder that Jeremiah could say by inspiration in Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Not inherently, not by created purpose, not by inherited total depravity, but through neglect. Like Hebrews chapter 2 says, as the intellect is devoid of God's word, it cannot be motivated to do His will, and it's desperately wicked. I want to tell you that there is a solution to this. There is the flip side of the coin, if you will. And that's the whole purpose of Ezekiel 36 and verse 26. I'll take that heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, keeping in mind that we have a great part to play in this. And I think that in Ephesians 4, Paul gives time to that as well. He shows the flip side of the coin. He tells them, don't walk like the Gentiles walk in the futility of your mind. That's what you used to be, but, but God has taken the heart of stone out. Or so He's trying to. He's trying to transform you and change you. Don't walk the same way anymore because, verse 20, you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your formal conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, and true righteousness and holiness. Just like I believe we saw the three facets of the heart of man in the stony heart of Ephesians 4, 17 through 19, I believe we see the heart of flesh demonstrated in verse 20 through 24. You notice there in verse 20, he says, you have not so learned Christ. He's speaking of that part of man that the Bible describes as the heart that learns, that comes to know, that receives information. He mentions, as you have heard Him and been taught by Him as the truth is in Christ Jesus, you have not been taught to live this way. You've been taught to live the opposite way, to live a holy life because as Billy pointed out so aptly, you are the church that called out of darkness into His marvelous light. You were called out of sin into righteousness. And that's the whole context of Ezekiel 36. You're in captivity because you're hardened against God's will. He wants to bring you back and change your heart to a heart of flesh. And that can only happen by His Word so that then your will can be changed. You have not so learned Christ, but this is what you have learned in Christ. Put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which goes corrupt. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man. You put off your former conduct because your mind is being renewed. Your mind is being renewed by the intellectual part of your heart that comes to know God's will, but then that is resolved to do God's will. You're deciding that God's will will be your will. As Paul mentioned in Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. But did you notice there also he mentions about those deceitful lusts that you no longer conduct yourself according to. Lust is a word that connotes a desire. You no longer have that desire. And so where your intellect is changed now and your will has changed, you're not motivated by these sinful attractions. You've put on that new man according to God in true righteousness and holiness. As he said in verse 13, we're trying to measure up in the unity of the faith to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ to that perfect, mature man. I want to be like Jesus. That's what motivates me now. I don't care about being like the world. Because I know God's will and I am willing to do God's will, what motivates me, what draws me, the desires that I have, have changed as well. You know, The Apostle Paul likewise in Philippians 3 gave attention to this heart of flesh. He said, our citizenship 
is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. That's what we are provoked to in the Spirit. That's what brings us emotion. And it's because that intellectually we know God's will. And as we know those facts and we've reasoned thus within our hearts concerning God's will, we are devoted to His will. And it's because we are driven by the incentive of the Gospel to be transformed in Christ Jesus and to have a heavenly home. Ezekiel says, God is trying to take the heart of stone out of our flesh and give us a heart of flesh. That's what the heart of flesh is. The heart of flesh is one who knows God's will, is devoted to it, and is moved by that goal of becoming like Christ and making it to heaven. But we pointed out at the beginning of the lesson that this is really a means to a necessary end. The Spirit of God cannot dwell in a heart of stone because man has a part to play in his salvation. If man is hardened against God's will, then God's will cannot be activated in his life. And this is a means to the end of the Spirit of God dwelling in us. He says in verse 26 of Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Take the heart of stone out of your flesh, give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Ultimately, the heart of flesh is that which gives the Spirit of God free course. It's what a child of God is. Romans 8 and verse 14 demonstrates, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. But you know, the opposite is the heart that God wills to enter and motivate and transform, yet that heart is the heart of stone and does not allow God's Word to enter. And 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14 Paul says it this way, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Why? Because his heart is devoid of them, so he's not devoted to them, and he's certainly not moved by them. They're foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. God wants to give us a heart of flesh so that ultimately He can put His Spirit within us, as Ezekiel 36, 27 shows. But how does that happen? What does that even mean? You know, Ezekiel doesn't stop here, but he goes on to demonstrate this in a very famous vision of the Spirit. In chapter 37, in verses 1 through 10, Ezekiel prophesies of a vision that he was given by God. And it has to do with this transformation and renewing process that God promised to Israel. And ultimately, the last days, these things would be fulfilled. The hand of the Lord, he says, came upon me in Ezekiel 37 and brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley. And it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass by them all around. And behold, there were very many in the open valley. And indeed, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord, you know. He said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as it was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise and suddenly a rattling and the bones came together bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. 
He said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. I want us to notice in this vision that yes, there is a valley of dry bones and they need to come to life. And God asks, can they live? And He says, you know, and certainly God knows that they can live. You're not too far gone, in other words. But how can they live? Notice verse 4, He says, prophesy to them. And a lot of times in the world, we think of prophecy of simply future telling. But that's not what prophecy really was. In fact, that was just a means to the end of validating a message spoken. Prophecy is inspired speaking of the Word of God. And that's exactly what he says. Prophesy to these bones. Surely I will cause breath to enter you and you will live. But notice, O dry bones, verse 4, hear the Word of the Lord. Breath will enter you, verse 5. The word for breath in the Hebrew is ruah, and it's the same word translated spirit in the 36th chapter and verse 27. I will put my spirit in you that you would walk according to my statutes and keep my commandments. And that's exactly what was fulfilled in verse 10 according to that vision. Breath came into them, prophecy, the word of the Lord, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. And so Ezekiel goes on to demonstrate the interpretation of that vision, what it means. And there were already some pointers as to what it's speaking about, but he gives it very clearly in verse 11, beginning, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Now, maybe the Jew reads this or hears this and thinks simply of the Jewish economy, their physical country. We want our land. We want our our autonomy. We want to be the power that we were in the world before. All these Gentiles are dirt and we want to be the people of God in this physical kingdom. And that's certainly part of that particular problem. Our bones are dry, our hope is lost. But the worst part of their being in front of God at this time is they're cut off spiritually. Their sin has separated them from their God. Verse 12, therefore prophesy. And say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. That's one of the seven blessings that we read about in Ezekiel 36. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you, verse 27 of chapter 36, remember, and you shall live and I will place you in your own land and you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Israel is dead spiritually. They'd be brought into the land so that God could put His Spirit in them. Understanding first that as we indicated in the vision itself in verses 1-10, through the Spirit is the Word of the Lord. And that their heart must be transformed. It must be made to a heart of flesh in order to receive the Spirit of God. You know, there's a lot of confusion about that in the world today. People think that we are incapable of receiving the Word of God, understanding it and allowing it to change us because we are inherently totally depraved. God has to have a miraculous operation, a spiritual surgery on our heart by the Holy Spirit so that we can even come to an ability to want to know, to want to understand, to want to do God's will. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying you've got to change your knowledge to come to an understanding of God's will so that you can will to do God's will and be desirous of God's will to have that motivate you so that then His Spirit can dwell in you. The Word of the Lord can dwell in you. 
as you know it, you will to do it, and you are motivated by it emotionally, then you are being directed by the Spirit of God. In verse 24, it says then, David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd, and they shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. That's what it means to have the Spirit of God dwell in us. You know, in chapter 18, again, as we alluded to, that's incumbent upon ourselves to get ourselves a new heart and a new spirit so that the Spirit of God, the Word of God, can dwell in us. I believe Jeremiah's prophecy of this new covenant of this new relationship with God, restored relationship with God in the Messianic kingdom is very telling for us. In Jeremiah 31 and verse 33, this is what Jeremiah says by inspiration. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Isn't that the same thing that Ezekiel was saying in chapter 36 and verse 37? I will put my spirit within you, having been given a heart of flesh, and you will keep my commandments. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. There's the blessing. I will be their God and they shall be my people. I want us to especially be impressed by the demonstration and the explanation of this covenant as it differs from this old covenant in verse 34 that Jeremiah points out. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I'll remember no more. I think that really hits the nail on the head with understanding the reception of the Spirit of God, having the Word of God written on our hearts and how that comes from a change of our heart to a heart of flesh. Under the old covenant, an individual is born and circumcised if he was male the eighth day. He was a member of that covenant. He was a member of the people of God. He was a member of the spiritual household of God under that old covenant. And he didn't know God. He had to be taught who the Lord was. But this new covenant doesn't work that way. You come into this new covenant relationship having knowledge of God because it comes from the preaching of the gospel. You are preached the gospel. You come to a knowledge of your sin, of Jesus' death and resurrection for you, and of the instruction to follow to get into that relationship, that covenant relationship with God through Christ. And since that's how it works, no man is going to be a member of this new covenant. No person is going to be a member of this new kingdom. No individual is going to be a member of the Lord's church without knowing God. We teach each other. We edify each other. But it's not because we're all completely ignorant of God. The very fact that we are a member of this covenant states that we know it. And you can only come into that relationship through that self-preparation. Only then can you receive the Spirit of God. Ezra said it this way, or the the Bible says of Ezra in this way, in Ezra 7 and verse 10, that Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. That's really what Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27 is saying. We prepare our heart to receive the Spirit of God and therefore be His people and do His will. Heart of stone can't do that. Only a heart of flesh. And we, having a heart of flesh, are guided by His Spirit. You notice in Acts, the second chapter, and verse 37, that those individuals were cut to the heart hearing the Spirit's teaching. That's what happened to us. We were cut to the heart. Our heart of flesh, to that degree, was manifested when the Spirit had an effect on our heart. So, as we mentioned in Romans 6 and verse 17, We obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which we were delivered. 
And 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 22 and 23, it pairs that with the obedience to the truth through the Spirit, having been born as God's children of the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. And therefore, we're guided by His Spirit. And it's because we have that heart of flesh. And I want to tell you that your progression as a child of God can only come from a continued cultivation of that heart. Because the heart of stone can return. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Spirit expressly says, in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, having their conscience seared with a, heart, a hot iron. They are individuals who had obeyed the gospel and returned to a heart of stone. They were no longer led by the Spirit of God because they were not submitting to the Spirit's teaching. There in Galatians 5 and verses 16 and 17, it speaks about not doing the things that we wish in the flesh, but being under the Spirit of God. And if we walk in the Spirit, let us live by the Spirit. In Ephesians 5 and verse 17, it says to let the Spirit be filled inside of you. Be filled with the Spirit, not drunk with wine in which is dissipation. And we understand the meaning of that in the parallel passage of Colossians 3.16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And what does that amount to? Verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Do you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you? Or is your heart of stone keeping it out? And what does that mean anyway? I think we see it very clearly in 1 John 3.24. He who keeps His commandments abides in Him and He in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us. But notice how He abides in us. By the Spirit whom He has given us. How do we know He abides in us? And He abides in us by His Spirit. And therefore, how do we know the Spirit abides in us as a Christian? We keep His commandments. We follow His will. Being a Christian is about having a heart of flesh. It's not simply about being dunked into water to rise up and walk in the same old life. Your past sins were just forgiven you so you can commit new sins. That's not what being a Christian is all about. Some people who have been baptized into Christ, they got wet, Perhaps as their heart was motivated in purity at the time, they had their sins forgiven, but they returned to the heart of stone. They stopped learning God's will. They stopped being devoted to God's will. They start being moved, stopped being moved and affected by God's will and all His promises so their heart is not filled with the Spirit of God. How do we know that? Not because we can see the spiritual realm, but we see they're not walking according to the commandments. If you suggest, if I suggest that I have a heart of flesh, what I'm suggesting is that I'm knowledgeable of God's will, that I'm motivated to do whatever it tells me to do, no matter how difficult it may be, no matter how many sacrifices I've got to make, I'm motivated to do His will because I am moved by the promise of heaven. And I am moved, perhaps furthermore, by the promise and warning of hellfire. That's what heart of flesh is. That's the kind of people God wants. The cleansing is merely the first step. The heart of flesh is a means to the end of a people of God that are dictating every single step they take by God's will. Allowing Him to live in us. Not through any mysticism. Not through any questionable way. But in an observable and defendable way through the Word of God which lives and abides forever. That's the invitation we want to give you this afternoon. 
to come believing in Jesus because you've learned of Him and you've reasoned about Him and you've reached the inescapable conclusion that He is indeed the Son of the living God and He died for your sins and was raised the third day never to die anymore and He'll judge the world in the end. You have an opportunity this afternoon to name the name of Christ, obeying His will and rising up from the waters of baptism to walk in newness of life and continuing to have your heart changed so that God can dwell in you by faith, through the Word of God. That's the invitation we want to give you this afternoon. If you've done that, but you've noticed throughout your life that your heart is not reflecting to be a heart of flesh, but a heart of stone, and God's Word is not given free course in your life, perhaps you need prayers, perhaps you need to make something right, whatever it may be, we extend the invitation call to you as well this afternoon. Come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.